Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Department of Justice preparing for a courtroom battle to force former top officials in the Trump administration to testify in what appears to be a growing criminal inquiry into the insurrection and Trump's role in it. Joining us is Erica Newland, counsel at Protect Democracy, whose work focuses on presidential election reform, Department of Justice reform, and securing accountability for abuses of power. She most recently served as an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice, and before joining DOJ, she served as a law clerk to the Honorable Merrick Garland of the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and as a senior policy analyst at the Center for Democracy and Technology. And she also worked in the National Security Division at the Department of Justice and the Senate Judiciary Committee. And she has an article at the New York Review of Books, The Attorney General's Choice. Then we'll assess the extent to which we are in a recession or entering one and speak with Stephanie Kelton, a professor of economics and public policy at State University of New York at Stony Brook. Previously, she served as chief economist of the United States Senate Budget Committee and as an advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. Her latest book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory, and the Birth of the People's Economy, and we will discuss the political political investment the GOP has in worsening inflation and a looming recession. Then finally, we will look into the possibility that Brazil's pro-military right-wing President Bolsonaro will lose the upcoming election, but like Trump will fight to stay in power, which he has already hinted at with his call for his supporters to take to the streets. Joining us is Andre Pagliarini, who is a professor of history at Hampton Sydney College, who is currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. And we will discuss his article at the New Republic, Jair Bolsonaro's plan to burn Brazil to the ground. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Erica Newland, who's counsel at Protect Democracy, whose work focuses on presidential election reform, Department of Justice reform, and securing accountability for abuses of power. She most recently served as an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice and also served as a law clerk for Merrick Garland in the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. She also worked for the National Security Division at the DOJ and the Senate Judiciary Committee, and she has an article at the New York Review of Books, The Attorney General's Choice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Erica Newland. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it already appears that the Department of Justice is preparing a courtroom battle to force former top officials in the Trump administration to testify in what seems to be a growing criminal inquiry into the insurrection and Trump's role in it, and we've already seen a number 
of top officials, certainly from Vice President Pence's team uh, with Jacobs and Mark Short testifying, and apparently it looks as if they're negotiating with Pompeo. They've also uh, interviewed Steve Mnuchin and former Chief of Staff Mulvaney. So this indicates a lot of activity on the part of the Department of Justice. So has the criticism of uh, Merrick Garland since she worked for him been unfair in terms of what's been described as excessive caution? If the Attorney General is anything, he is thorough and he is careful. And so the pace of these investigations has not surprised me. I think they are in keeping with with that care, and I'm uh, pleased to see that that they're bearing fruit. And and to be clear, what I mean is I'm pleased to see that the facts of what actually happened around January 6 are are increasingly coming to light. And Merrick Allen did do a recent interview with Lester Holt of NBC, in which he said talked about justice without fear or favor, and went on to say we intend to hold everyone anyone who is criminally responsible for events surrounding January 6th or any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other issues with respect to that. So what about criticism, though, that the DOJ has sort of been uh, sitting on its hands? I mean, they have enormous resources compared to the January 6th committee, and we've seen how People like Stephen Bannon and Mark Meadows have defied the subpoenas from the House Select Committee. They couldn't do the same such thing with the Department of Justice, right? Is that is that a fair criticism? I think it is hard to know what's going on at the Department of Justice without being at the Department of Justice. You know, Ben Witt has had a piece in Lawfare recently where he said, you know, we're not in a position to say whether the department is moving too fast or too slowly. In fact, it may may always, no matter what outcome we get here, it may always be hard to determine what was too fast and what was too slow. And and I have to say that's that aligns with um, with how I'm seeing these uh, these developments. I'm certainly. Uh, pleased to see that the January 6th committee has um, brought more and more evidence to light and and to learn some of the recent news about about all that is um, all that is transpiring at the Department of Justice. You know, I know that the department put in a request for uh, dozens more attorneys to work on these cases that was turned down by Congress. Um, and so that may be an indication that that they are moving slower than even they would like to. So let's turn to your article at the New Yorker Review of Books that you wrote with Ian Basson, The Attorney General's Choice. In terms of comparisons to going back to Watergate and Nixon's resignation or prior to Nixon's resignation, after Nixon's resignation, of course, there was a period where President Ford gathered his top advisors in the White House and said he was inclined to grant immunity to Nixon for further prosecution. And, of course, the Watergate special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, was also uh, in continuing his, his investigation into uh, Nixon's uh, criminal acts. So what is the, is the division then between the responsibility of the Department of Justice and a president's responsibility? Not that in this case the analogy fits with Biden. Biden has no role in this. It's, it's 
in this situation is entirely up to the DOJ. Well, it is up to the DOJ to determine whether or not the evidence supports prosecuting uh, the former president. Um, but then it is up to the president to decide whether or not to pardon uh, pardon the former president. And you know, when Lester Holt was was interviewing the attorney general, he said, "Well, don't you have to take into account kind of a na national interest determination? You know, would it really serve the national interest, as divided as we are as a country, to uh, to prosecute Trump?" And you know, I was pleased to see that the attorney general said, "We follow the facts and the law where they lead." Um, and I think that is the the correct understanding of the department's role here. Um, and then it goes to the president to decide um, whether or not to exercise his pardon power, whether or not that would be you know, in the interest of the country. And we saw the same set of questions arise uh, when a decision was being made whether to prosecute former President Nixon, Leon Jaworski, special prosecutor. Um, had evidence, clear evidence of criminal culpability, and his staff wrote him this extraordinary memo that said, we know you may you may be thinking about whether you should figure out what's going to best heal the country, but that is not for you. You should focus, we should focus on these um, traditional factors of, um, of prosecutorial discretion. Those all point in favor of prosecution here. Um, and let the decision about whether to halt a prosecution, let that fall to the president who has his finger on the pulse of the American people. And that's, that's not the role of the attorney general. So in terms of Trump, exerting executive privilege in he already has in the case of of his uh, white house counsel and we saw how his uh, white house counsel had to sort of navigate questions where it may have involved his direct conversations with trump and obviously these uh, other top officials that are being interviewed like mnuchin and mulvaney and if pompeo talks and obviously there are missing texts now we're learning from from the Department of Homeland Security's heads, Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli, and along with the Secret Services, Tony Anato and the head, James Murray. So there's obviously quite a lot of inquiry to go on there. But, for example, the January the 4th meeting in the White House where Eastman, the um, the, <laughs> the attorney with odd ideas uh, that Trump had employed uh, to convince Pence uh, not to do his constitutional duty... In those meetings, Mark Short was present, and he had he was interviewed by the Department of Justice's grand jury a few days ago. How could he navigate around that? I mean, in other words, in that testimony, he's able to talk about what he said to Eastman, but he can't talk about what he said to Trump. Is that how it works? Um, that's how he says it works. Uh, executive privilege is subject to a balancing test around the need for the information and um, and the context in which the conversations took place. And the privilege only applies with respect to the president's official duties. So for example, um, you know, if the president is um, talking with his buddy about a, a round of golf, he doesn't get executive privilege for that. And you know, now my my view is that when you are trying to overthrow the results of a free and fair election inconsistent with your constitutional obligations, you're not engaging in, in anything relating to your official responsibilities. Um, and I'm sure that is um, we're going to see that those arguments play out over the coming months as um, as prosecutors try to um, to prevent 
executive privilege claims from um, from inhibiting or obstructing their um, their investigation. There's also a question of who gets to invoke the privilege right now. Um, is it in Biden's hands or is it in Trump's hands? And um, we've seen we've seen some debates over that play out already in the D.C. Circuit. Is this in the territory of unsettled law then? Uh, yes, it is. It is largely in the territory of unsettled law. And that's because usually these disputes over privilege do not get um, do not get sent to the courts. They usually get kind of hashed out in a negotiating room. So just in the last couple of minutes, um, since you worked in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department and the memo that says that uh, you can't indict a sitting president has obviously been featured a lot. Uh, in the Mueller inquiry and in, in all the subsequent investigations into Trump, etc. And is it possible that Trump could declare he's running for president soon? Obviously, the Republican Party don't want him to do that because uh, it's going to screw up their chances in November. But Trump, I don't think, cares about the, anything but himself. So it's hard to know what he'll do. But there's a suggestion that he might declare he's running for president to give him some immunity uh, under that OLC decision. Does that uh, ring? Does that carry any water with you? Him declaring uh, his candidacy for president, uh, I do not think would prevent prosecution. Uh, you know, and, and I understood the attorney general to say as much in his interview. I think it was in that Lester Holt interview. If he gets elected and inaugurated then that opinion would would kick into force. But while he's a candidate, no, he is as susceptible to um, to prosecution for past crimes or for ongoing crimes as as anyone else. Now, the attorney general would need to sign off on a prosecution, um, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the attorney general signs off on any prosecution of the former president anyways, regardless of whether he's declared a candidacy. So just in closing then, it seems that there is a lot of cooperation now going on between the DOJ and the January 6th committee. They're exchanging transcripts, etc. So what's your sense of where this is heading? I think that um, the only question at this point is not whether Trump committed crimes, but whether the evidence available is admissible in court and whether the uh, the prosecutors and Department of Justice have finished looking under every rock. I'm eager to see what happens in the coming months. And I have faith that the um, that both the January 6th committee and the attorney general understand that um, accountability is um a really critical national value right now because it promotes institutional trust. And we know that institutional trust is at its lowest ebb in our country's history and that institutional trust is critical for maintenance of our democracy. And um, I think that's what, what this entire exercise is in service of. Well, Erica Newland, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. Really appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Erica Newland, who's counsel at Protect Democracy, whose work focuses on presidential election reform, Department of Justice reform, and securing accountability for abuses of power. She most recently served as an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice and also served as a law clerk to Merrick Garland in the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And she also worked for the National Security Division at the DOJ 
and the Senate Judiciary Committee, and she has an article at the New York Review of Books, The Attorney General's Choice. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the extent to which we are in a recession or entering one. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday, you can call him at home. Better get out of my side, boys. Tell you I'm a busy man. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephanie Kelton, a professor of economics and public policy at State University of New York at Stony Brook. She's a founder of the top-rated economic blog New Economic Perspectives and a member of the Top Wonks Network of the Nation's Best Thinkers. And in 2016, Politico recognized her as one of the 50 people across the country most influencing the political debate. Previously, she served as the chief economist on the United States Senate Budget Committee and was an advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. And her latest book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephanie Kelton. Nice to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Wednesday, the Fed raised the interest rates three quarters of a point. And on Thursday, both President Biden and Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen uh, made a pitch for how good the economy is in in the face of the news of a fall in the GDP in the second quarter, which is, I guess, a traditional definition of a recession. So one of the things that I find extraordinary is that the Fed, in effect, seems to be obsessed with inflation. And in dealing with inflation, they're exacerbating or perhaps even causing recession. So isn't that a bit strange that you've got, you know, the Fed obsessed with inflation and uh, the real problem is a recession and they appear to be moving us closer to a recession? Well, yeah, it's it's strange on many levels. And then on one level, at least, you can say, okay, well, what is the Federal Reserve's job? And Congress has given the Fed a mandate, and we usually call it a dual mandate. And we say that Congress put the Fed in charge, basically, of the economy and said, we want you to deliver two things, um, high levels of employment and economic growth and low levels of inflation. And so, you know, we had a period of time last year, certainly, where we got the high growth and and high employment part of the mandate, uh, but then inflation started to pick up. And so that puts the Fed in a situation where it's kind of like, well, what do I do now, right? If I am responsible for delivering low inflation, but inflation is clearly not low, right? We're sitting here at 9.1% on the headline inflation rate. And so the, the goals are in tension with one another. And the Fed has decided that it needs to get aggressive on the inflation front. We could debate that. Uh, I don't think they're doing the right thing. But the reality is Congress gave the Fed a job and Jerome Powell and the rest of the Federal Open Market Committee is trying to deliver on both sides of that dual mandate. But of course, it's 
totally a political issue, is it? I mean, isn't it, Stephanie? With In effect, you could make the case that Republicans are invested in inflation and in a recession because they don't have any answers either to inflation or to a recession, except they're hoping it gets worse so that they get back into power. I mean, that's the way I see it. Maybe uh, that's too cynical of you. What do you think? No, I think they are in some ways celebrating right now. I think you're you're right. <laughs> you're right to point to the cynicism here. I mean, I saw the G- GOP Twitter feed earlier today and I saw them tweet, you know, this is Joe Biden's recession. And of course, they've been tweeting for months now that this is Joe Biden's inflation. So they are delighting in some sense in the fact that, you know, the stars are aligning for them in the sense that voters are not happy. Uh, Biden's polling, the approval numbers are are very, very um, bad. And that doesn't bode well for Democrats or for, Demo- uh, for Democrats in the midterms or for President Biden, um, you know, looking ahead. Now, a lot of things can change over the next two years, but they're focused on the midterms. And for them, there there is a sense in which this is very good news. And again, I'm speaking with Stephanie Kelton, a professor of economics and public policy at State University of New York at Stony Brook. She served as the chief economist on the United States Senate Banking Committee and was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. And her latest book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. So is there any chance that, uh, obviously, Facts and figures in in post-truth America don't seem to have much traction. So all the arguments that the Secretary Treasury Yellen and Joe Biden made in their television appearances on Thursday probably aren't going to work. But do you think any of the measures, like this surprise deal between Schumer and Joe Manchin, particularly in terms of a, a corporate minimum tax of 15%, uh, and also some money from the IRS, which will increase revenues. And is there a chance that a couple of legislative successes of Biden's could turn things around? What's your sense about the deal that Schumer's made with uh, Manchin, although it could be scuttled by uh, Senator Sinema? What do you think about it, Stephanie? I think there are some good things in that piece of legislation. We're, we're talking about more than 700 pages of uh, of legislative text. I haven't read it all, but I do understand something about, you know, some of the top line, uh, what's in it in terms of climate spending and so forth. There are some things in there to like for sure. But, you know, keep in mind that the message that Democrats are giving us now, and you mentioned both President Biden and Secretary Yellen being on television, talking this thing up. One of the things they're saying is, that in addition to making these investments in climate and and those sorts of things, we're also, they say, going to further reduce the fiscal deficit. We're going to bring the government deficit down even more. So what they're saying is we have a plan to take about $740 billion out of the economy. We have a plan to spend some money back into the economy, but what we're going to do is we're going to remove about $300 billion more than we plan to spend, and we're going to call that deficit reduction. Now, if you're thinking about an economy that is slowing down as fast as this one is, it strikes me as a little bit strange that you're out there saying, 
you know, we don't want to see a recession. We don't think we're going to see uh, the slowdown get so severe that we go into recession. And by the way, we're pursuing policies that will take more money out of the economy than it puts back into the economy, which is, you know, exactly the kind of thing that you would do if you were actually trying to slow the economy down. So it's very strange, uh, Ian, what what they're doing. I mean, there, there are definitely some things to like in this bill, no question about it. Uh, and, you know, getting taxes up on the wealthy helps to address to uh, some degree. This isn't very aggressive, but it will do something in terms of income and wealth inequality. I think that's fine. I think that's laudable. But um, it, it is strange on some level because even taking money out of the hands of higher income earners right now. So you've got somebody making $500,000 a year. So maybe they spend a little bit less. Maybe they don't uh, do that weekend at the Four Seasons, okay, or something like that. Well, all right. So maybe, you know, you don't need the busboy at, at the Four Seasons. Maybe you don't need the bartender on the extra shift at the Four Seasons. I mean, it's not without impacts downstream. Do you see what I'm saying? You can't just say, oh, we're going to tax the rich and concentrate all of the pain, you know, in their pocketbook. It just doesn't work that way. Well, a 15% corporate minimum tax is not really taxing the rich in the sense that Biden, uh, on his statements on Thursday, said of the Fortune 500 companies, over 50 don't pay any taxes at all. Yep. And this is uh, something that Yellen has worked on uh, at the Fed before she became Secretary of Treasury. They have a global minimum tax so that you don't have this race to the bottom. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not suggesting, you know, uh, again, these large profitable corporations that get away with paying nothing in federal income tax, that is true. Uh, you have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce already coming out. The lobbyists are out. They're going to try to kill this thing. Maybe they can pick off uh, enough Democrats to create trouble so that that doesn't stay in the legislation. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that, you know, you raise corporate income tax rates. And again, you know, we say that when wages go up, corporations respond by raising prices to try to protect their profits and their profit margins. We say, you know, when other costs, energy costs and raw materials costs go up, businesses respond by raising prices to protect their profit margins. So it seems to me that it's a, at least a bit risky when you talk about, you know, corporate tax rates. It's not clear that a lot of that doesn't ultimately get passed along to consumers that somehow, you know, these firms are just going to absorb all of that. So again, I don't think it's right. I don't think large profitable corporations should be paying zero. Uh, I don't know whether this gets done, but there are some, some things in this legislation worth trying to do, no question. So since, Stephanie, since you worked as an advisor to Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns, he spoke out against this, what he considered to be corporate welfare in, in terms of the CHIPS Act that was just passed earlier last week in the Senate. And in fact, Senator McConnell was holding up the, anything. He said, if the Democrats try to do anything on Build Back Better, I'm not going to go ahead with the CHIPS Act, which was $52 billion to uh, incentivize the manufacture of chips in the United States. And the minute that that passed, so suddenly the mansion and uh, 
Schumer bill comes out of uh, surprising everybody, so he can he, hard not to see a connection there. But in terms of what Senator Bernie Sanders said, you know, that he said we're doling out corporate welfare. My colleagues often say they're concerned about the deficit. Well, if they're really concerned. Let us not give a blank check to the highly profitable microchip industry with no protection at all for the American taxpayer. So he joined 30 Republicans in voting against the measure. Is it corporate welfare? What do you what do you think, Stephanie? I mean, it's a it's a subsidy. So, you know, we we should, I think, think strategically about when and how to use Um, federal dollars to support investments in industries that we deem, you know, a substantial, uh, in our substantial public interest, whether it's, you know, investments in our ports and our physical infrastructure, if it's investments in the production of critical inputs like semiconductors um, and chips and so forth, whether it's healthcare, I, I don't have a problem with subsidizing um, strategically investments in certain industries. I understand where he's coming from. I don't think the deficit play is is the right one. Nobody cares about deficits. Lawmakers will vote to fund their priorities with or without offsets. And, and I think Senator Sanders knows that. What he was trying to do, Ian, is get, now, he didn't like it for a variety of reasons, and you laid them out. But what he wanted to do was at least make sure that if you take tens of billions of dollars from the federal government, that you are not also, as a large profitable corporation, doing share buybacks and executive pay compensation packages and all that sort of stuff. So he wanted some safeguards put in place so that you know the money was invested into the company in these ways and that it didn't end up trickling up to you know corporate um, up the corporate ladder. Now, there was some language inserted and some people were trying to say that uh, they had actually addressed Senator Sanders' concerns and that was all taken care of. That wouldn't happen. But in fact, if you talk with Senator Sanders' staff, they will tell you that it's it was basically toothless, that uh, there's there's nothing in there to prevent any of the kinds of things that really concern Senator Sanders. Well, he, he's right to be concerned about you know, first of all, the Chips Act was heavily lobbied by the nine tech companies: uh, Alphabet, Apple, Broadcom, Cisco, IBM, Intel, Microsoft, Qualcomm, sure. and te- Texas Instruments. And they've spent over one trillion dollars in buying back shares of their own stocks, which is twenty times what the Chips Act's fifty-two billion dollars yep. uh, represents. So, isn't that the real problem with corporate America? Is that rather than investing in R and D? They're buying back stocks uh, to raise the stock prices, which, of course, uh, means that the CEOs get even more of their exorbitant pay raises. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Look, the the CEOs, whether you talk about energy companies or we're talking now about chip manufacturers, we for decades, the, the name of the game has been and is the pursuit of profit and you you drive up your corporate profits in many cases by driving your costs down, which is why so many of these plants are now located in places like Taiwan and elsewhere and no longer here in the US. So we've created a supply chain that left us vulnerable. We all know that now. So, you know, we are vulnerable as a consequence of the way that we have constructed our supply chains and logistics and the rest of it. So it's a it's a 
decision to be made about whether to try to reverse some of those trends. And if you think you're going to wait around for these companies and you say, well, they'll figure it out. It's in their interest to reshore some of this manufacturing capacity. We don't have to incentivize them with federal dollars and and so forth. You may be waiting for a very long time. I don't know. Uh, Perhaps on some level, this is the, the right move. Maybe there were better ways to do it. I'm sure there were. But I don't, I'm not, you know, I guess universally just sort of allergic to the idea of making strategic investments in industries that are of importance to, you know, our economy and national security and the rest of it. So there was, of course, in the bill that was passed in the Senate on Tuesday, the industrial policy bill to counter China, Mm -hmm. there was $200 billion for scientific research in particular artificial artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing, and other technologies. So is that, <laughs> I don't want to beat, this, beat a dead horse here, is that corporate welfare or is that a needed investment? I mean, is, are we going to get our bang for our buck? See, I think this is, in a sense, is the problem because I think it comes down to, in a, you know, it kind of comes down to our politics, right? Whether whether we want to use the word corporate welfare. We don't call it corporate welfare when we're investing in healthcare and education. You and I don't do that, I think, because we want to see those kinds of investments. Then, you know, we see federal dollars going in another direction. We think, oh, this is probably going to end up, you know, with some with defense industries or uh, fossil fuels or some other thing. And we then we use the, the term corporate welfare to describe what's going on. I mean, you know, we subsidized... Uh, Tesla, we tried with Solyndra, you hope that you're going to put money into things that are going to lead to technological breakthroughs, advances that, you know, lead to real improvements, in people's lives, whether it's medical breakthroughs or AI or, but there's no way for me to know in advance, I don't think any of us can, whether these are ultimately going to be quality of life enhancing or, you know, corporate profit in hand. Maybe it's going to be some of some of each. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, Stephanie, since politics and economics are inextricably bound in this current situation we're in um, with this week of economic news, and here we are, what, a few months away from uh, an important midterm election, and some people are concerned to the extent that this may be our last election because if the Republicans are able to take power in the House and Senate and Trump is able to come back, we may end up with a one-party state like uh, the hero of the Republican parties, Orban, in Hungary has created. So, you know, it's, there's a lot at stake in November, uh, let alone in 2024. What's your sense of where the economy is going to be since it's clear that the Republicans are absolutely gleeful over the situation vis-a-vis inflation and recession, both of which they have no plans or no policies to address, but they're in a kind of what schadenfreude mode where they're getting pleasure out of the Joe Biden's pain. Well, you're if you're asking, so you're asking where do I think we're going to be come midterm. Yeah, come season. November. Yeah. I I think that the the economy is clearly, you know, people will use polite terms like softening. Okay. It's deteriorating, Ian. 
And I don't think that I, I don't anticipate a turnaround by the midterms. I think that the policies being pursued, both fiscal, that is from Congress uh, and legislatively, there's just not enough in place that's going to do enough to reverse those trends in time. And then you've, of course, got the Fed, you know, continuing to tighten and you can see the slowdown. I mean, it's, it's evident. It is upon us. So I don't think things look terribly good. I'll tell you uh, a quick story before we go. I was at an event in California, not all that long ago. And I was sitting in a hotel lobby and Frank Luntz happened to be sitting very close by. The Republican uh, operative. Polster, polster Polster. operative, yeah. And this was uh, the morning after the leaked Roe memo out of the Supreme Court right? The morning after the memo leaked and we got wind that maybe the the Supreme Court was going to take up Roe and overturn Roe. And so Frank Luntz is sitting there, he's talking with a Republican. And the Republican is telling him that he had been out to dinner the night before with his wife and his daughter. And they were both just absolutely, you know, completely outraged, both of them. And he said to them, can we please just get through dinner, right? So the the women were raging over the possibility of Roe being overturned. And they're both related to this Republican, right? So uh, Frank Lund says to him, listen, if the election is about the economy and inflation, you guys win. If it becomes about anything else, and he said, I mean anything else, and you're you're not safe. You're, you know, anything can happen sort of thing. And so, you know, the the Democrats have a a few months left to figure out what they want to message. But as far as I can tell, they've decided that they want to make it all about inflation and all about the, the economy. And it just seems to me, you know, if Luntz is right, that seems to play right into the hands of the Republicans. Defending the indefensible, <laughs> as opposed to making uh, the best arguments. Yeah, I, I get it. It's, let's hope it doesn't happen. And I thank you for joining us, Stephanie. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me back in. And again, I've been speaking with Stephanie Kelton, who's a professor of economics and public policy at State University of New York at Stony Brook. She's the founder of the top-rated economic blog, New Economic Perspectives, and a member of the Top Wonks Network of the Nation's Best Thinkers. And in 2016, Politico recognized her as one of the 50 people across the country most influencing the political debate. And previously, she served as the chief economist on the United States Senate Budget Committee and was an advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. And her latest book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at the possibility that Brazil's pro-military right-wing President Bolsonaro will lose the upcoming election, but like Trump, will fight to stay in power, which he has already hinted at, with a call for his supporters to take to the streets.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andre Pagliarini, who is a professor of history at Hamden Sydney College. He's currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. And he has an article at the New Republic, Jair Bolsonaro's plan to burn Brazil to the ground. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andre Pagliarini. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a I won't say a pleasure to talk about Bolsonaro, but uh, it's an important conversation. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And he is a, even a, a more of a disastrous president than, than his role model here in the United States, Donald Trump. And he looks as if he's even more determined to hold on to power and, and to do so through violent means, uh, particularly, as you point out in your article, um, the speech that he gave on Sunday, where he's urging his followers to show up in force on September the 7th, Brazil's Independence Day. He said, the army is on our side. We are the majority. We are good, and we are willing to fight for freedom and homeland. I call on you all to take to the streets on the 7th of September for the last time. Let's take to the streets for the last time. Now, what does he mean by the last time? Does that mean that there will be no uh, democracy after this. I mean, it's a scary thought, is it not? Right. I mean, this idea, this imagery of a kind of showdown between what in another speech he's referred to as sort of literally good and evil. Um, and so Bolsonaro, you know, this is a kind of culmination of the way he has talked about politics in Brazil um, for, for several years now as one between good and evil uh, you know, communism and freedom, uh, really these stark terms, which, you know, to his most dogged, his most determined, his most ardent supporters um, is, you know, raises the stakes, I think, of the election in a way that in 2018, when he won the first time, you know, clearly that was a climate, that was an environment where the wind was at his back, where this really anti-left-wing or anti-progressive, if you like, uh, this kind of rhetoric was really um, overwhelming in Brazil after years of Workers' Party governments and so on. But, you know, I, I just spent the, uh, most of the summer in Brazil, and one really gets a sense that the mood has shifted, in large part, I think, because of Bolsonaro's really disastrous presidency. But this same kind of way of talking about politics as, you know, we need to take to the streets this idea of a showdown, of a final confrontation, uh, even if it's sort of kind of coded ways. I'm just not sure it plays the same way with the electorate at large. I think it does with his most committed, uh, in many cases, armed and you know belligerent followers. But it doesn't seem to be helping him electorally, this kind of combative language, in the way that it did in 2018. And I can say more about that, uh, why I think that in, in 2018, this was key to Bolsonaro's political success. But in a way, it's not helping him now. Well, it's interesting, at least it seems that there's a connection to his rhetoric of encouraging violence and uh, perhaps making this showdown as the last election before Brazil <clears throat> goes back to a military dictatorship. Now, mm -hmm. you make it clear that the top leadership in the military are not interested in any kind of coup, but maybe the lower ranks might be. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in uh, Brasilia on Tuesday 
saying the more we deepen our democracies, the more we deepen our security. So it looks as if the Biden administration is concerned about uh, Bolsonaro being like Trump, but even worse than an assault on the capital, but an assault on the country itself. Yes. So there was this summit this week in Brasilia of the uh, secretaries of defense of the various countries of the Americas. Uh, so it was an opportunity for this issue to come to the fore. So Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was there. Um, it was an opportunity for former President Lula, who currently leads the polls, to make the point, he said, that when, if and when he wins, he, he has led every poll taken this year. If and when he, he wins, he said he will name a civilian to the uh, Ministry of Defense. You know, uh, in any other time, sort of an innocuous statement. Yeah, of course. I mean, in a democracy, usually the, the head of the armed forces should be a civilian. But that's really become a political statement to say that, look, we are going to depoliticize the armed forces. Um, and to, to your first point, uh, Bolsonaro, and I note that's in the piece, has really stuffed his administration with uh, generals, uh, you know, and, and, and different ranks of military figures to an extent not really seen in Brazil uh, since the era of military rule from 1964 to 85. In fact, in some ways, by some calculations, it's even more militarized now because the military dictatorship wanted to pass off the impression that it was not a military dictatorship, that it had all kinds of civilian technocrats. But Bolsonaro has surrounded himself by, you know, for example, one of the most disastrous uh, uh, health ministers during the height of the pandemic was a general uh, who supposedly was an expert in logistics and, and not a not a public health specialist, but and it was it was just a, a disaster. But the the uh, the difference that I want to draw attention to is that most of the military, uh, in fact, all of them, because they have to, most of the, the military in the administration are in reserve, are what's called the, the reserve, that is not active duty. The active duty heads of the branches, the people who are actually in command of troops, have all said they respect democracy. They've said in interviews off the record, look, we, may not, we, we might not be crazy about Lula, but if he wins, he won. That's it. We will respect the outcome of the election. So that should give some comfort to people who are, are, are worried about the situation, which is that the guys actually in charge of men with guns and uniform um, have all said, look, nothing crazy, right? We're going to follow the election. Well, you mentioned uh, the general in charge of the health, or one of the generals in charge of the health ministry, which is a catastrophe. But, I mean, it's hard to believe that somebody could screw up the response to COVID-19 worse than Donald Trump did, but apparently Bolsonaro had managed that. You also mm -hmm. mentioned uh, that... Lula's ahead in the polls. He's among the male voters. He's at 42% to 39% for Bolsonaro. And among women, it's 46% for Lula compared to 24% for Bolsonaro. Now, apparently, he's deployed his first lady, Michelle Bolsonaro, who's three decades younger than, than her husband. She's kind of like a, uh, Brazil's Melania, is she? I think I think that's a fair comparison, uh, in, in, in part because Melania had been a, a model, if I recall correctly, and Michelle uh, Bolsonaro. Well, yes, uh, we, right. we, I was about to commit libel here and get sued by her. She was more than a model, but we won't go into that. Let's go that's ahead. Right. And, and Michelle Bolsonaro was, if I recall correctly, you know, she had been a dancer. In other words, they both come from this kind of. I suppose, glamorous or, you know, 
attractive women and, and so on. So from that, from that kind of world. And the reason I note in the piece that she's three decades younger is just to say that she is, if I recall, Bolsonaro's third wife. Uh, you know, this is a guy who, who campaigns on family values and so on and so on. And yet, you know, the, I think that the, the point is, is, is clear that this is a woman who, you know, uh, helps him, is trying to help him politically now uh, by appealing very strongly to the evangelical base. She's very evangelical. She's one of these people, you know, who will close her eyes and sob and reach her hand into the air talking about, about Jesus. Um, and that, that is a very potent, you know, political force for Bolsonaro. At the same time, I think it's clear from his career and, and his behavior that he's a very kind of sexist and old fashioned kind of, kind of man who uh, does not really want women to be speaking uh, on his behalf or, you know, he really likes to control the message. He likes men in uniform. He likes, you know, him or his sons to really control the message. So I note in the piece that, you know, she has not really been up to now part of the government's public relations uh, face or campaign. But it looks like she might be playing a little bit more of a role now to try to reduce those differences uh, that you mentioned. Uh, another point I wanted to make, uh, you've noted the comparison, which I think is apt, between Bolsonaro and Trump. But one difference I always note is that, you know, Trump was this incredibly reckless and anti-democratic figure in the United States. But I think we, we can safely say that American institutions largely held under Trump, largely. I mean, with all kinds of challenges. Bolsonaro uh, is, in my view, more dangerous because the institutions in Brazil are much newer. Uh, you know, they were in some cases as old as I am, which is, you know, my early 30s, um, created in the late 80s after the end of military rule. These are institutions that, yes, have are solid and they've, they've done a lot to improve Brazilian democracy since the end of military rule. But, you know, I, I do think they are still subject to a lot of manipulation by uh, an unscrupulous president like Bolsonaro, which is this is why I, I, I in writing the piece about the election, I say that no other genuine democracy in the world is under the kind of threat that Brazil is in, uh, because it's a relatively young democracy and someone who's really committed to doing a lot of damage to it, which I think Bolsonaro is, can really cause a lot of harm. Well, he's I mean, he's so, he's a clown. I mean, he's a sort of dangerous version of Boris Johnson in the sense that his behavior is ridiculous and embarrassing. And he's so out of touch and he's an old, as you say, he's an old fashioned misogynist, etc. And I don't know about his military career, but it doesn't sound like it was that stellar. And there's nothing more dangerous than these kind of ex, ex warriors who whose resumes don't measure up to their bluster. But the damage that he's done to the Amazon rainforest affects the entire planet. I mean, is there any sense in Brazil that that the whole world is suffering from the actions? Because uh, obviously, you know, it's often been said that Brazil are the lungs of the earth. Well, you know, the earth will have emphysema soon if, <laughs> if Bolsonaro comes back and continues the rape of the Amazon. I recall in 2019, which the first full year of Bolsonaro's administration, when the fires in the Amazon rainforest were breaking all kinds of records. And I, I remember writing and talking with people about this, uh, which is basically to say that this is a very tricky political issue in Brazil. That is the Amazon, in part because both 
historically the left and the right in Brazil. So, you know, fascists and the military and communists and left-wing nationalists have always fretted that foreign powers, richer countries, more developed countries want the Amazon, that they covet the Amazon. And so there was a way in which, you know, this idea that foreigners are telling us how to govern the Amazon or eventually they're going to snatch it away from us. This is an idea that has appealed to left and right. So I think for a while, Bolsonaro was able to at least mitigate some of the political damage he might have received by saying, well, you know, Macron uh, is, is is on my case because, of course, France wants the Amazon with all of its precious resources uh, and, and so on. So I don't think it hurt him quite as much as it might have, as it should have, perhaps. But I, I think by comparison now in a political campaign with former President Lula, who presided over a historic drop in deforestation, right? His, his uh, environmental minister, Marina Silva, is an internationally renowned environmentalist in her own right, who worked with Chico Menges in the, in the 1980s. So I think by comparison, and especially, of course, the recent murder of, uh, tragic murder of Don Phillips and Bruno Pereira in the Amazon, uh, a tragic incident that Bolsonaro said, well, they shouldn't have been there, that was stupid for them to go. I think these things are, are going to sharpen the focus in a campaign season to say, yeah, you know, this is not about foreign designs on the Amazon. This is about whether or not the Brazilian state is going to exercise its sovereignty over the region. And the Bolsonaro has shown no inclination to do so because the major forces of depredation in the Amazon, large cattle raising, illicit mining, these are strong pillars of his support. So he has no interest in, 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 in shoring them and reining that in. So I think the, the comparison with Lula will be very uh, illustrative as the campaign goes on. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Andre, let's talk about what you mentioned in your article as a kind of portent of, of violence that could come. Already, uh, Marcelo Arruda, a member of the Workers' Party, who in uh, had, a, had a local office in southern Brazil, he was celebrating his 50th birthday with his friends and family, and one of Bolsonaro's supporters drove by and was angry and then decided to come back armed and in the meantime Aruda decided to also arm himself he was a local law enforcement officer and uh, the guy did come back the Bolsonaro follower and shot him in the in the leg and in the back before Aruda managed to fire five shots but uh, he saved the lives of the party goers around to get out of the way but he himself died so that's been a national story has it not it has. And this is just such a sad story, even for those of us who follow, you know, Brazilian politics closely and say that this cannot end well. I think it was still surprising. I mean, another thing that's surprising about it is that there were so many security cameras. So there's lots of footage of this guy storming the party and just opening fire like, a you know, something out of a Western movie. It's, it's really kind of terrifying. There's children at the party. There's balloons. There's cake. Um, and. You know, one of the really intriguing things right away is how was how would this play politically? So Bolsonaro, you know, I think recognizing that, look, people are going to say that I am fostering this climate of political violence, which I think is fair to say. He reached out to Ahuda, the victim's brother. Why did he do that? Because Ahuda's brother is a Bolsonaro supporter. Um, rather than reaching out to Ahuda's wife, his widow, 
And so the government filmed this. They, they put it out, I believe, on, uh, I can't remember which social media, but there was footage of Bolsonaro FaceTiming with the brother of the victim to say, basically, look, wouldn't you like to come to Brasilia, do a press conference, say this is not my fault, that I am not to blame, that this was about a petty squabble between two people in this one location. It's not about me. Well, Ahuda's widow and that part of the family were furious about this. That, you know, the president isn't even calling to offer his condolences. Or I think he's rather worried. Um, going back to one of the first things we touched on in this conversation, Brazil today is very different than it was in 2018, when much of the country was looking for a little bit more of a pugilist attitude to the left, right? The, at that point, the Workers' Party had won four elections in a row. Nobody on the center-right had been able to dislodge them from power. Maybe this is what was needed, a tougher, you know, more politically incorrect right wing. We've seen that now for four years. And I think most of the country says, you know what, this is just gross. It's dangerous. We don't really like it. And so I think Bolsonaro is trying belatedly now to distance himself from the kind of violent rhetoric I talk about in the piece, uh, the 2018 campaign, that he was at this rally and he picks up this big tripod, a big heavy camera tripod, and pretends it's a machine gun. It said that we're going to shoot up all the leftists and so on. I think the country is sick of that. I, I, I really do. I think the levels of violence um, in ma most major areas have not declined. Bolsonaro promised security, law and order. Uh, he has governed terribly on the, the pandemic, as we noted. Inflation is very, very high. Um, I, I, I think the emperor's clothes, you know, people have noticed he doesn't have any. Um, and so, you know, he's going to try now to say he's not about violence, that he's the only one standing between Brazil and Venezuela, the kind of communist uh, specter. I'm just not sure, you know, as the campaign really gets in, in, in gear now, and there are a few months away from, from voting, that this has the same kind of passionate uh, appeal that it did last time. Because, as we've seen, the polls have been remarkably consistent. So he, he's running out of time. Well, I hope that is the case, and I thank you so much for joining us here today, Andre Pagliarini. Thank you, Ian. It was, a, like, as I say, a pleasure uh, to talk about it. I, I, I'm hoping to come back maybe and speak with you when we have some happier things to discuss about Absolutely. Brazil. Absolutely. <laughs> Your first call I'll make in October. And again, <laughs> and again, I've been speaking with Andre Pagliarini, who is a professor of history at the Hamden Sydney College, who is currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. And he has an article at the New Republic, Jair Bolsonaro's plan to burn Brazil to the ground. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice sang something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land One more light goes out in the middle.